Welcome to Canada's Musical Mosaic. I'm your host, Rhea Beaumont. It's an enormous privilege to speak with today's guest. He's one of the world's best singer-songwriters and guitar players who's written over 300 songs. He's an officer of the Order of Canada and been awarded eight honorary doctorates. He's won 13 Juno Awards, received the Governor General's Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement and been inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Among these many honours, he's also travelled the world and written songs about life itself, from spirituality and heartbreak to human rights violations and political issues. I can only be describing the legendary Bruce Coburn. Hello, and thank you very much for speaking with me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me with you. 2020, it marks 50 years since the release of your first album titled Bruce Coburn, and you've gone on to release another 33 albums. The most recent is Crowing Ignites from 2019. It's an instrumental album. Uh, it's folk-based, but with diverse musical influences. In comparing your first album to this most recent one, what would you say are the major changes, are the, the biggest similarities or, or differences? I'd say you've always achieved artistic excellence, but... Has your artistic process changed or the style of the music, um, maybe the outlook towards your albums? Because this is a lifetime between the two recordings. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it, I stylistically, there have been shifts over the years, but I mean, if you compare Crowing Ignites with uh, the early stuff I did in the 70s, it, it's closer to that than it is to what I was doing in the 80s. The, the, for instance, I mean, the, the stuff that people have mostly noticed because it got the radio play was stuff from the, the 80s. And it's generally band-oriented music with not a great emphasis on, on the guitar parts. Uh, before that and after that, uh, there was a lot of uh, attention paid to the guitar and and I mean, it was. I guess I, in the beginning, I kind of conceived of the guitar as being the band, and I kind of still do in a way. So when I have other people playing with me, they kind of have to work around these, for the most part, relatively complex guitar parts to, that that kind of are intended to fill the space that a band would fill when I'm playing by myself. So, like I say, in the '80s, that that wasn't really the case because the bands. I was touring with tended to be bigger and the recording situation. Uh, I just was writing music that worked better with, with uh, larger groups and, and depended on drums and that sort of thing. So the, the more people you have playing, the smaller the guitar parts got, <laughs> seemed like. So, so, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, but then I, I got tired of that after a while cause I, I do love the guitar. So the last album that Crowing Ignites is, is an instrumental record. Uh, it's just it's it, it's just guitar. Uh, some of it layered, most of it just guitar. Just there's a lot of acoustic guitar. It sort of resembles the earlier albums. But uh, I I feel having grown up in uh, as an English Canadian with without much sense of tradition because I don't. I mean, there are you can find strains of of various traditions that that existed. Uh, you know, 50 years ago or more in Canada, in English Canada, in Quebec, it's quite different, of course, but, but in English Canada, 
um, but they're, but they're regional and and or uh, kind of ethnic strains that go back to to the British Isles or go or the Ukraine or wherever. I felt because of because I'd grown up in that atmosphere, I felt free to kind of take my music anywhere that the wind blew it and. Um, so uh, there's a lot of different influences at, at work in it, and uh, and that continues to be true. One of your earliest projects uh, back in 1970 was writing music for the film Going Down the Road by director Don Shabib, and it's become a cult classic. It's one of Canada's most influential films, and your soundtrack won a BMI award. You said that you wrote the music, and I'll quote, to express the point of view of the people in the movie, but I guess not necessarily your own. And yet the music, it suits the film perfectly. What in particular about the movie inspired the soundtrack? Was it the storyline, the look of the film? Because it has the feel of a documentary. Or was there a moment that ignited your inspiration to write the music? Uh, the movie stands up rather well I, over time. I've seen it a few times in, in later years, and, and it's uh it still looks like a good movie and it, and it, i was excited to be asked to provide a score for it i had not done a movie like that before i think i'd done a couple of short films just instrumental music for for uh, um, a a film on canadian tourism or something and some, some maybe something else but to to do a whole feature film was was a challenge and and an interesting one so I I got together with Don and he showed me the film and he had he had kind of slotted in sample music that just to give himself something to cut to to edit the film to. So there was the Eagles and there was this and that and the other thing and there's some some very hardcore country stuff and some not so much so and and uh, uh, different all these different things and and he basically said okay I want you to write stuff just like that. <laughs> only, only, only original. Well, it, he didn't get that out of me. I mean, and in the end, I think he was happy. But, but uh, I, you know, there's no way I'm going to write an Eagles song. I, but uh, I think that he, I think he knew what he was saying too. I, I don't, I don't. I think that he knew that if he put it that way, that I would understand that he was offering a model, and that he wanted something to that would emotionally and stylistically fit uh, the spot in the film where that where that model was supposed to fit. So that's how, how it got started. And uh, the title tune, I had to, okay, I'm going to write something about leaving Cape Breton. I'd never set foot in Cape Breton, so I didn't know I couldn't write that from personal experience. But but I'd read a bit, and I'd met a bunch of people from uh, from that part of the country. John Allen Cameron, for one, uh, and I heard stories about Cape Breton. And so, you know, I kind of tried to put myself in the place of someone who would who would leave there in search of a different life, which is essentially what the characters in the film are doing. So that got it started. And then there were, there's a couple of other songs that appear in the film that fit places. And I, generally speaking, I'm not a fan of songs in the body of a film. I mean, as a theme... Maybe, but uh, it's just I find putting lyrics together with a with the visual imagery of a film is kind of pointless in a way. <laughs> that said, uh, it was a, it was a it was a good exercise, and I think it came out okay. 
you know, and 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 Don seemed to think so too that that to to do these things. But I had to, as you said in your uh, preamble to this to the question, was just that I had to put myself in in the characters and write from that perspective as I could understand it, and and not from my own because my my life has never had the counterpart of that in it. So you know, I, I mean, I've I've done a lot of traveling. I had not done as much back then, but it it, uh, it the story resonated from a human point of view, of course. And, and you know, we've all known characters. I could picture people I'd been in high school with being those characters. But it was a, it was an exercise in in artifice in a way. Uh, and as such, I uh, I didn't want to make a soundtrack album. There was some 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 pressure to do that. It's like, oh yeah, well, when's the soundtrack album coming out? Well, I'm not. it would have been my second album, and I didn't want my second album to be made up of songs that didn't have to do with me. <laughs> you know, really, that were written uh, with hindsight. That was a foolish concern. I should have. It was a mistake not to have done the soundtrack album, probably. But at the time, it seemed very important to me to kind of establish myself as myself before I started. Uh, you know displaying things that only had an oblique uh, connection to to me so the crowd uh, around the film i mean the, the the actors and don weren't that happy about that but but uh, anyway there's no soundtrack album <laughs> well on the other hand it makes people go and watch the movie to hear the soundtrack so there you go yeah and it's worth watching so, it so go for it <laughs> well I've uh, I read your memoir, Rumors of Glory, published in 2014. The book is so candid and personal, but the title is from your reggae-influenced song from the 1980 album Humans. Um, can you tell us more about the connection between the title of the song and choosing the title for the book? Um, Rumors of Glory is the song you're thinking of, and and it was really the publishers who had kind of insisted on it. Uh, I don't. I didn't have a better idea, which made it easy enough to go along with it. But um, there were other suggestions. There was "Pacing the Cage" was was one also, which is a song that uh, a lot of people relate to. That's that's later than "Rumors of Glory." But but there's something. I think the implication of "Rumors of Glory." Well, you can take it so many different ways. The song itself talks about kind of subtle or not manifestations of the divine around us. You know, you can also take it as here's a guy who's there's people, people say it, tell you, will tell you how great he is, but nobody really knows that because he, nobody <laughs> listens. He's, he almost had a hit and almost did this and almost did that. So it, it, it seemed appropriate from, from that point of view as a, as a title, it, it seemed to capture the necessary elements. Um, well, I wouldn't agree with all of that. You have eight honorary doctorates and still self-deprecating, so you must be Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> we do learn it. We do learn to be that way. We do, actually, yes. Um, you write in your book, and I'll quote, My travels have immeasurably informed my understanding of world events, of people, of the way that rivers move through landscapes. The songs are made of these things. Wow. 
organizations such as Oxfam and the Unitarian Service Committee, they've invited you to travel through very dangerous areas to observe firsthand the the plight of people in war-torn countries throughout Central America and Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Not everyone would have accepted these invitations because, you know, there was a a real danger. Um, Can you tell us about the mindset or I'd say courage that was needed to go to undertake the journeys and then also write the songs about what you witnessed? I'd say it took tremendous inner strength. The uh, curiosity sort of overrode everything else. Um, And given the invitation, I'd, I'd actually thought... The first of those kinds of trips involved Nicaragua and and Central America, and 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 that trip produced, if I had a rocket launcher and several other songs, um, that ended up on the Ceiling Fire album. That uh, I'd been looking around for a way to get to Nicaragua without being having to be a tourist, like like a it just didn't make sense to me to just buy a ticket and go, which I could have done, and nothing was stopping me. But, but I didn't speak Spanish, and I could have gone there and stayed in a hotel and looked at things and not understood what I was seeing, and that didn't appeal to me. But, and I hadn't found anybody like a guide, the right the right kind of helper or guide. Yes, we, yeah, for that kind of trip. And then I got this call from Oxfam, wondering if I would go on their behalf, and they were. They had somebody that was very experienced Latin America hand that was going to go, and they had asked Nancy White. They asked a few people, I think, but the group of us ended up being Nancy White and me and and Rick Arnold, who uh, grew up in Venezuela and who speaks flawless Spanish and um, and is very familiar with Latin America in general. Mm-hmm. The way we went, and uh, I was a little nervous because. Not so much about going into a war zone because I I really thought and I and correctly as it turned out that we'd be well looked after. I, you know, there were yeah maybe one or two moments where something bad could have happened, but um, generally we were kept away from um, situations like that. So you know it wasn't so much scary as it was exciting. And uh, and and revealing. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, there was emotions ran high because it's the first time I'd seen the so-called third world up close. First time I'd seen a refugee camp, other than on TV. First time I'd been among people who were at that end of the economic equation in the world. It was it was exciting and moving and and I mean very disturbing at times, but but not really scary. Although there was a plane ride that you wrote about in your book that maybe was a little well, the plane ride was a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> even even that though, I mean, I kind of I'm a bit fatalistic about things like that. You know, it's like if I mean, I'm sure if if the plane had you know started pouring spewing smoke and and falling toward the earth, I I probably would have been terrified. But as it was, it didn't do that, so I wasn't. But it but. Yeah, the plane ride we got of that uh, as we're taxiing across the field that was the 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 airfield. It was a literal field, you know, hadn't been plowed in a long time. It was bumpy, so we're bouncing across this field, and the pilot 
turns over and says over we're sitting on sacks of rice and, and just right behind the pilot's seat uh, on the plane and he he's he turns around and says over his shoulder uh, you know I never took a flying lesson and now I own my own airline <laughs> <laughs> and he had this grin this wicked grin on his face and I guess he was trying to scare us you know and it, it was funny but but he did a good job. He was, I I think, quite a skillful pilot. And then there was one point where he got scared that it was we were landing in in the second of the two camps that we went to. There was another just a cleared space in the in the bush where you know there was people lined up down each side of it, waiting for the plane to land because they'd heard it coming. But uh, there were all these dogs running around <laughs> in the on the runway, so to speak. Wasn't really a runway, but it, but, uh, um, and you know, he's he's committed to landing at this point, he can't really maneuver much. Mm-hmm. So, he, so we're coming in low, and the dogs are not moving, they're, they're, they're kind of just being dogs, you know. And finally, somebody realized, oh, we got to get the dogs out of there, <laughs> and then some, some kids ran out and chased them away, but in the nick of time, like, so I. I got to, to chuckle over his nervousness at that, although I guess I should have been nervous too. This concludes the first part of the interview with the legendary Bruce Coburn. This is Rhea Beaumont for Canada's Musical Mosaic. Stay tuned for part two. Thanks for listening. <laughs>